Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back to another episode of Believe in the Press Row. A gloomy, gloomy, I should say, not gloomy. It's a gloomy Tuesday morning here in Seattle, uh, bright and early. Things are relatively quiet, happy to report. Um, things have kind of settled down a little bit. Protests are going on peacefully, which is good to hear. Um, corona cases seem to have flatlined, which is good. Things are starting to reopen. We've entered phase 1.5. We, we're not ready for two, but we're 1.5. I uh, went to Whole Foods yesterday. All doors were open, seemed pretty good. A glimpse of normalcy, I guess. Uh, I am thrilled to be joined today uh, by someone who has been in, on my TV set probably more often than anybody else that I can think of uh, from when I was a kid to, to current day. And if memory serves me correct, he would be on my TV set a lot these days, uh, if not for current trends. We are thrilled to be joined today by Ron McLean, host of Hockey Night in Canada and so many other things. Ron, how are you? I'm great, Jonah, and I'll report that we're 1.5 in the greater Toronto area as well. So oh, good. It's awesome. Yeah, a few crowds. You know, you're allowed 10 in a gathering now versus five last week, and uh, still a lot of limitations in terms of what's open. And uh, yeah, it feels like, uh, you suggest, a, a peaceful day. So we, we in, in hitting 1.5, we are now allowed to go to five. Until then, we were at zero, no public, no gatherings at all. So it has been uh, a massive change, as you can imagine. You know, the ability to go to a friend's house and actually sit outside, a, still six feet apart, but actually engage with people other than those who live in your household has been fantastic the last couple of days. Uh, as a friend of mine said, I like my family a lot, but we're ready to see other people. Yeah. So how are you and uh, how are you and your family dealing with all that's been going on? Well, like you, we've been since, uh, let's say, April 1st, at least uh, in quarantine and enjoying each other's company, which is, you know, I, I worried that we get under each other's feet. And uh, but Carrie and I have no children. So it's just the two of us in the house. I think for, you know, parents who are trying to school and such, the challenges were far greater than what we've had to endure. We have a dog, but uh, it's been a, you know, I, I'm working a series called In conversation which airs uh, four days a week including the best of episode and that that has kept me a little bit uh, sane in terms of any work itch uh, and then I think we've kind of built our days around you know five o'clock for a cocktail and a nice dinner I think it's kind of brought the family dinner idea even though it's just the two of us uh, it's brought sort of that back together for a, a period of conversation and catching up each day that I've enjoyed so you don't know this there's no way you'd remember we've actually met twice one I guarantee you don't remember, but I was uh, I was at the All Star Game in Montreal. I believe it was wow. the last one at the Forum, mm -hmm. and uh, we were at a location that serves those beverages that you have around five o'clock. And uh, I was in college at the time. I had drove down from the University of Vermont, and uh, we actually chatted for a long time. Again, I wouldn't expect you to remember that. The second time was more memorable for me actually because I actually got to see you out of your element so to speak and it was really refreshing. Uh, you and Carrie were at the keg um, tent if you will at the Budweiser soundstage for the Blue Rodeo concert oh. and we were standing in line next to each other and uh, you were waiting for whatever they were serving us back there and I just I, I could not believe how amazingly calm and respectful you were for the throngs of people coming up to you repeatedly when you were clearly out for a date with your wife to watch a concert. And we talked about that for a long time. I said to you then, I really, I, I, it's admirable how you do it. Um, is it. Is it like that all the time when you go out? Uh, a lot of the time it's, uh, you know, if I'm in a ball cap and shades, maybe you, you, know, you have your anonymity that way. But but yeah, people love hockey. And, uh, you know, as you suggest, just because I've been blessed to be on Hockey Night in Canada for 34 years, you're, you're a known uh, figure and you're a comfortable figure. I think people just assume by virtue of the job I do uh, that I'm I'm just a, a colleague, a rink rat. So that I love that. I remember being a boy, Jonah, in Whitehorse, Yukon. My father was Air Force and we were stationed there. Bobby Hall came to visit. And he had the most beautiful, glossy uh, five by eight photos, not small ones. He had these big, beautiful photos of himself. Uh, and he signed forever and a day. And 
I remember, I don't know if I tucked it away thinking, well, if I'm ever in a position to do autographs, I would love to be as patient and gracious as he is. Uh, but I do remember it sticking with me. And that kind of became the norm as I met Jean Bellabeau and Gordie Howe and Bobby Orr and Guy Lafleur. And, and I'm not, please, I'm not comparing myself to those, but because it's hockey, you have an association with them. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like it's a really nice little perk of, of the job to make someone's day. Simple as that. That's such an interesting perspective because we hear all the time about athletes, especially in Toronto, who have such a difficult time with it. Uh, inability to go to restaurants, can't go to the mall, can't go to a movie without being inundated and thronged. It's, uh, it's certainly different and unique to hear the perspective that you, the effect that you're having on someone's day as opposed to the lack of privacy and space that you have. That's, that's, Pretty incredible. You don't hear that very often. Well, I think in fairness to the athlete, they fell into their career a little bit. They were good at it early. Uh, they were sort of targeted for top teams. Uh, they became very sports specific. Mm -hmm. uh, and then all of a sudden, the things that they're being asked to consider, business, uh, being a uh, moral leader, uh, th those come right out of the left field in their world. Whereas I was thinking of being a teacher at the end of grade 12. And I sort of dabbled in some radio in Red Deer, Alberta, and I learned that that feeling of six o'clock in the morning, putting on a nice song and telling the listener that it's going to be 32 degrees and a blue sky day, and here's a lovely song to get you on your way. Wow, what a great feeling. So I, I, I right away sort of internalized the, the joy of making someone's day. I, I thought doctors probably get that feeling, teachers get it. Uh, our vocation by choice, rather than maybe happenstance, would be, I think, a little bit the difference there. So... Let's go back then. You've taken us there. Thank you very much. So you're out in Red Deer. You want to be a teacher. You do some broadcasting. There's a gap between that and whammo, you're the host of Hockey Night in Canada. How does that happen? Very strange thing because I thought for uh, the first, I'd say, eight years of my career, I was stuck in a rut never to get out of. Uh, I, so I, what happened to me is uh, a buddy of mine in high school, grade 10, I was in grade 10, he was working at CKRD, the local radio station in Red Deer, was an FM, AM, and television entity, tri-entity. He was on the FM board, just operating. And the job was simple. At the top of the clock, you flip a lever, you press a button that plays a cartridge, which looks like an eight-track tape, but not everybody here would know what an eight-track tape yeah. is. <laughs> anyway, it, pl it plays the cartridge, yep. and that was uh, a little announcement, a five-second announcement. This is CKRD 99.9 megahertz in Red Deer, Alberta. That was it. Then you rejoin the CBC network. So they needed a kid to do that, and my friend Bernie Roth, another friend, Sean Sutherland, did it. Uh, Andy McDonald did it. Don McDonald did it. So they were making $3 an hour operating. And one day, one of them was ill, said, phone Ron. He'll figure it out, because who wouldn't? And uh, that's how I got into radio. And then, I, and then I started to do some announcing. They asked each of us to read the news at midnight on Sunday evenings. I was horrible, crucifying. You know, I can remember how I butchered Seoul, the word Seoul, South Korea. Oh, terrible. Uh, and I just kind of found the bug, yet uh, I had extreme anxiety. Uh, I remember the first time I spoke on AM radio. To a, to a board, you know, just a sound board uh, with the two turntables on either side and there's the microphone switch and, and I, I had nobody to speak to. I was speaking to a wall of buttons and knobs and I was just lost. I, I, I know, and so I needed a boss, a guy named Wayne Heinrich, to teach me how to visualize it's you and a listener or a reader or a viewer, one-on-one -on -one communication. Not, it's not, hi everybody, it's not, hello Canada. <laughs> it's just you and one person, Ron, and that person's going to have to have your sensibilities because if you cheat and try to be someone you're not with that person, you're on the road to nowhere. And that was the greatest lesson of all is to, to just speak to your own sense of humor, sense of ethics, and, uh, and hope that pays off in, in the end that you you're receive the trust, the companionship of, of the one on the other end. So, so how do we get from radio, radio host, to host of Hockey Night in Canada? So what happened is I was moving up the chain. I was the all-night DJ. When I finally got out of grade 12, they offered me a full-time position. So my, I intended to go to the University of Alberta, pursue education, become a teacher, as I said. Uh, but they offered me a full-time gig, and I thought, well, I'll do it for the summer, see if I like it. And uh, so I was doing the midnights, and then they gave me the 8 to midnight shift, the evening show. And then they promoted me to the noon to 4 show. And whoever at CKRD AM Radio in Red Deer, whoever was on from noon to 4, was automatically designated as the TV weather presenter on the six o'clock evening news. Man, woman, didn't matter. So I was the noon to four announcer. I would get off the air at four, do a few commercials, 
And then I would phone Environment Canada with a map of Canada in front of me, and they would tell me how to draw the trowel, the trough of warm air aloft, or the low, the high, and all the different weather systems. And they'd explain to me how they work so that I'd just go out and regurgitate that on the supper hour news. And that caught the attention of John Shannon. If you can believe it, because what would happen, Jonah, is I would have uh, a lot of technical guffaws with the news, clips didn't air, so the weather, it's targeted for three minutes would end up being eight and I couldn't talk about the weather for eight minutes so I'd start to forecast Oilers and Flames games, Eskimos and Stampeders yeah. games and John Shannon thought he's on his feet pretty good. Uh, we have to replace, uh, TSN began their operation in 1984. They hired away John Wells, Peter Watts, Jim Van Horn, all left Alberta, Gord Miller uh, to become you know, staples of TSN and that opened the door for kids like me. I was 24 and John Shannon called and said, I want you to apply to audition for the position as the replacement to Jim Van Horn hosting Flames games in Calgary. This is 84. I got that job. I don't know how, because I was a deer in headlights, awful, but I got the job and did it for two seasons. And then the 1986 development was that Dave Hodge went to CKNW, as you know, you've spoken to him about his path for ir irrespective of him leaving later that year, he's still on hockey night in Canada as the 86-87 season begins. And really my job is to come to Toronto from Calgary and host the Wednesday night Toronto Maple Leaf broadcasts on CHCH television. That's the gig. It was, uh, it was 30 Wednesday nights, let's say, and maybe 10 Hockey Night in Canada appearances where Dave is predisposed and working out of the Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver. And then he, uh, of course, had his falling out with the CBC uh, later that year during the Briar, uh, which is a fun and long story. But uh, and that's that's how I end up, you know, a, a victim of circumstance. So the good news is that John Shannon told that exact story. I, I there knew is. the first. <laughs> the good news is I'm not lying. Yeah. <laughs> Both of you are proving at least on the same page. Yeah. So there's a rumor out there that when Dave threw his pen, you were the one who actually caught it, even though you were hundreds of miles away. Is that true? Well, no, I was in the room. I, I was actually at, at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. Uh, so our studio, do you ever go to the old studio at yes. Maple Leaf Gardens? Yeah, Absolutely. so you know what it was like, asbestos yep. hanging from yeah, everywhere. Yeah. It was a filthy mm -hmm. rat trap of a room with, you know, the stairs cascading. But you loved it. Admit well, it, you loved it. Well, I don't know about that, but I think, I think you know. It had character. It, it gave me the idea that maybe they didn't land on the moon. <laughs> if Hockey Night in Canada, if the great Dave Hodge, if all of this is happening in this little cesspit. Right. Wow. You know, that was one of the funny revelations when I first saw the gardens. The gardens were, I mean, when uh, Stephen Stavros uh, took over, uh, maybe it was Cliff Fletcher's impetus, I'm not sure who, uh, Donald Crump, there was so many people there when they had a sort of left the Ballard era and into a new era and they actually washed the gardens because it was, it was really dirty on the outside too. It's a Mecca to us all. It was such a, you know, such a letdown to, to have grown up you know, thinking of it as one of the two great cathedrals. And it was in such disarray by the time I got there in the 80s. Anyway, they cleaned it up. And, and I remember being in that, uh, in that room and just uh, watching Dave, you know, have the debate back and forth with Doug Sellers about don't put me on. I mean, I'm watching this unfold. Don't put me on. I do not want to apologize for the network's foolish policies. If you put me on, it's not going to be good. And you know the story. He, yeah, he, yeah, of course. He does go on, he does go on you know, with the idea that he's the paid professional that's supposed to somehow smooth this over, and it didn't happen. And then, uh, and then we all repaired to a hotel down on the harbor front. Uh, I think at the time it was a Hilton. Uh, and now it's a West. Yeah. That's right, the Harbor Castle. So we go there, and I'll never forget this, Jonah. I, I'm sitting, Dave Hodge is there, uh, you know, commiserating, and I'm sitting right beside Harry Neal long-time analyst and Harry said you know Ron uh, I'm not saying you have to be a phony about it or anything but you should cultivate a relationship with Don Cherry you know you and he seem to have something by then I had maybe done seven or eight coaches corners and I agreed he just sat there <laughs> but whatever that was seemed to have a, a certain you know ability to, to generate in Don uh, confidence that delivery was improved a little bit maybe uh, anyway that was Harry Neal's recommendation to me that night and Little did I know that the next Saturday I would be hosting in Montreal and, you know, the eyes of, uh, you know, anybody that was into scrutinizing media and certainly the hockey world was on this. Uh, this oh, don't look at me. I wasn't doing that then. I, I was, I was relatively young back then. That wasn't my gig yeah. then. I often think, you know, uh, that, that was a time when, you know, you kind of wore a scarlet letter because you were taking uh, over from a, Dave was martyred, you know, for his stance was uh, absolutely speaking on behalf of the frustrated sports fan. So you come in under very difficult circumstances and the past year was filled with the same kind of difficult circumstances. So, you know, it's a long journey and uh, 
you know, how you, how you sort of stay even keeled and, and persevere uh, and be respectful and humble about everybody's dignity. Crazy. Well, it's interesting because I think one of the high, my opinion, which is worthless, but um, my opinion, one of the best nights you all had on hockey night in Canada recently was the night Dave actually came back. Oh gosh. And yes. uh, it was brilliant. Like it, yeah. for those of us who are old enough to remember, um, it was just, it was a night filled of class. It, you guys just did it perfectly. And uh, it was great. It was really, it was really great to see. And it, it was great TV drama. And uh, mm -hmm. it, it closed the loop and you, you, you could almost exhale, you know, um, so much time had passed and so many shows and so many different things had gone on, mm -hmm. but uh, it was really a great moment. It was great TV, um, given the medium that it is. Like people watch it because it's entertaining. Um, the games are great, the interviews are great, the shtick is great, but it's never, you know, it, it elevated things in my opinion. And, and uh, I have a picture somewhere around here that I took of the screen that night because I thought it was, I thought it was really memorable. Well, you'll never get back what Dave had, right? Uh, he, he, he is an extraordinary journalist, uh, uh, incredible writer. Um, and it's funny, I, I think about that night because it was born of an idea after beer league hockey on a Tuesday night. We go up to a little bar in the arena over here, Canland in Oakville, and, uh, and it was my teammates who suggested, why don't you get Dave on? Uh, and I thought, oh boy, that's a lucky thought. You know, and, uh, and that's sort of my little rink rat beer league hockey guy. That's kind of, the, I think, one of the things that I get to bring that's different from what Dave would bring. But, uh, you know, together, uh, there was just great power in that night. So thank you for that. So, you know, so one, one question, we're going to take a right turn here for a second. We'll come back. But where did the love affair and affinity for refereeing come from? Bernie Roth, the same guy who kind of got me hooked up in radio, was, uh, you know, now we're 18 years old and we're starting to dabble in radio. And it was Bernie who said, I'm switching to refereeing, Ron. In my case, I got cut by the Red Deer Rustler Tier, tier 2 Junior A uh, team. So I kind of knew that was the end of the line for me. Uh, but Bernie was worried, as I was, about we didn't have masks in those days. Not visors, not masks. And uh, if I got a serious dental injury, which was common in the day, you know, broken gum bone can be two years of surgeries. It could result in an impediment. It could result in time off. It could be so many things that were... Uh, dangerous about playing hockey and pursuing radio as a career. It wasn't looks or cosmetics I was worried about, but it was definitely diction and, uh, and time. So that was a friend who recommended refereeing. And, and I, uh, again, I, I went to, uh, into that with the same notion that you get to make someone's day. It's the strangest thing because you are getting yelled at a fair bit and you certainly, you realize that no matter how noble your uh, intention, half of your, uh, yeah, People are going to say, take it, shove it. Uh, but I liked that. I, I always felt that, you know, that, and that, that probably, I used to say that it was great to teach me to let the guest be the star. I, I've often used that metaphor that in radio, television, uh, interviewing, certainly refereeing, you are trying to make the guest the star. Uh, but when I now look back on some of the uh, exploration of ethics that came out of, out of being yelled at, out of trying to manage the human condition, trying to decide about the individual, their self-autonomy versus the collective, the team, the game. Uh, I was learning uh, indirectly uh, fantastic lessons about, uh, again, stick-to-itiveness. Just, just know that that wild uh, thing coming at you isn't really about you. <laughs> so it was, a great, it was a great education. And then once you did it, the fun we had, you know, I, I honestly, Jonah, my favorite moment in hockey of all my moments in hockey I really get a kick out of watching a team seal the Stanley Cup or the gold medal at the Olympics. You know, the, the final five minutes of somebody in a tighter game having to do it, you know, and the regimentation and the discipline and the heart. I really get a charge out of watching the St. Louis Blues last year finish up in Boston was, was electrifying. But my greatest joy in hockey was when I refereed and I was, you know, level five. So I was doing university, uh, junior, some semi-pro. Uh, and when I was doing junior and I would stand at the center dot and the anthem is playing, and the team has already done the pregame skate, so they're a little bit sweaty and there's steam rising off the backs of their necks and they're charged and ready for a big playoff game. And, and it's going to be up to you to try and make it a level playing field. And it's, you know, sounds a bit uh, self-aggrandizing, but you're, you really had a, a, a desire to do it right. Uh, and I, I, I certainly get that feeling in broadcasting too, but, but on the ice, I, I always say I used to have horrible anxiety in broadcasting. I never had it on the ice. Uh, and I don't know if that's because I was in motion skating 
or mm-hmm. why I never seemed to get, you know, where I was starting to get fight or flight. Because uh, I had it considerably often in my career as a broadcaster. But on the ice, just felt like, you know, you can do this. And uh, yeah, nice. That's amazing. I mean, it certainly provides you with a different perspective than a lot of people have. Uh, and especially a lot of your colleagues who were players. Um, to bring a different perspective, uh, to think about how the folks in black and white are thinking about things. It, it does. It provides a very unique perspective. It's interesting. My son plays relatively competitive hockey here in Seattle, and there's an NHL linesman who teaches a hockey school out here. And a couple times we've been away, and he's been doing a game. So we, we, we've, we're in contact with him. We've gone to see him after the game. The most shocking thing to me you talk about Maple Leaf Gardens, is the hellhole they put the referees in in, the, in some of these arenas. My Lord. I mean, these guys do have a union. They're not doing a very good job when they're basically in a closet with a shower. It's true. I, I remember when I first moved to Ontario, so this was, you know, the big smoke is what they call Toronto. Yeah. And, I, you know, I was, I was coming into this, uh, you know, the kind of the hub, the economic hub of the country. And, and I refereed my first game at uh, York. Uh, I was doing yeah. a women's OUAA game. And... Uh, York uh, was hosting Concordia, I believe. Anyway, I went into, as the referee, a furnace room. Right. That's where I got dressed. <laughs> I was just like, oh my gosh, thought I'd made it. By the time you've made it, you've had it. So it was crazy. It was an eye-opener there. And, and But but for, uh, you know, the, the refs uh, were kind of, I think our mind is so gone when we're, uh, and I, different referees are different in their approach. Me, I had to I hated being at the rink early. I didn't want to have time to start to read the rule book and start to overthink. I was, I felt I had a better night if I just came racing in the door kind of last minute, but that all changed. We had to, the linesman had to be on the ice for pregame skates in the event of a brawl or problems. So we were always at the rink quite early and uh, yeah, the, the mental challenge of officiating and, uh, some of the times I would get lost going to, I remember I couldn't find the arena in Richmond Hill, Ontario. So I was late for that one. Probably roughed a good game because I walked <laughs> in like five minutes to game time. But, oh, I had such a, it was a great way when I moved to Ontario to learn the area. I, I would have to find the little rinks all around uh, from Newmarket on down to the Golden Horseshoe. All right. So, so you're sitting in the room. Dave throws the magical pen. You have, you have a few adult beverages at, at the Harbor Castle. And the next thing you know, you're the host. How does that conversation happen? Well, there was a couple of calls. Uh, I'm trying to think if Denny Harvey, Denny Harvey was uh, above. uh, Don McPherson was sort of responsible for sports. He was the executive producer of sport at CBC. And there was another gentleman, Bob Cornell, lovely man. Bob used to kind of pull me aside and say, Ron, we can't have Don running roughshod over, you know, you're the authoritative voice of the CBC. 26, <laughs> you know, uh, but, but they were really, you know, uh, they were sort of the middlemen, whereas Denny Harvey, at, he was the guy that called me midweek and said, Ron, here's the situation. You're going to be hosting uh, this Saturday in Montreal. Um, and I, it's a long time ago now, but he, he kind of explained how they were positioning it with the press. I mean, things were so much different, right? No, of course. no social media, very few, but, but we did have Bill Houston in the Globe and Mail. We did have Ken McKee in the Toronto Star. Uh, before Chris Elkovich, we did yeah. have people specifically writing on the topic of media and broadcasting. So that was a, a little bit of the, the background. And certainly it was kind of front page news in the Calgary Sun, I remember. Uh, so it was a little bit of a, a commotion that, that for me, you know, as a kid with anxiety issues, <laughs> there was a lot to confront. And uh, the only thing I often say is I was a bit like the backup goalie thrust, you know, I was David Ayers. It was so surprising that it was happening that, um, I kind of just did the technical stuff that weekend. I I just tried to execute the job as opposed to thinking too much of, uh, oh boy, you know, you could be king. You know, let's write your own self-narrative here and let's really be uh, impressive. You still have a bit of that. You're always trying to, you know, to do the great job. But I I firmly think I was sort of rooted in a a bit of denial that it was just for for the time being. It wasn't for for the long haul. So somebody who's had a history of anxiety I can only imagine what that night was like. Yeah. Well, my, my worst night was the first night back before Dave left when Dave was in Vancouver and he threw to me at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. And now it was just like, you know, what the hell is happening here? I'm in Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto and Dave is not. And uh, he's throwing to me and we're now colleagues. And, you know, he was my idol. 
uh, I was awful, awful scared that night. I just, uh, awfully scared that night. And uh, the heart was going. And I, I've had a few NHL awards. Second time I did it in 1995. I remember that. And now here's Ron McLean. Right. And <laughs> fireworks. And I just, just didn't have it. I was hitting the stage, scared skinny. So I've had a few of those moments. I had to work my th way through. And I think is that, you know, we didn't talk about anxiety back in my age. Uh, but now I, I, I learned over the course of time triggers, you know, things that would cause you to have uh, an increased probability of an attack. And then I just learned to persevere. That's, you know, of all the lessons that, you know, have come out of being 60, just hang in there. You know, it, 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 it does diminish as the seconds go by. And same with issues as the years go by. All right, I'll let you uh, take a breath there for a second. Take a sip of your water, whatever it is in the in the big blue mug. You know, uh, there we go. So, unfortunately, I mean, we are inching closer to having professional sports back, but with no NBA, NHL, or M MLB, which is a whole different story. Uh, Bet online still has hundreds of games, events, and sports to wager your hard-earned cash on. NASCAR is back. Madden and NBA 2K simulations, UFC, and of course, some online casino with poker and blackjack. Sure to check out the final dance with the roundtable interviews from ex-Chicago Bulls, Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, Craig Hodges, and Ron Harper, as they discuss the Michael Jordan document in full. Lots of fun to be had. BetOnline.ag. Use the promo code MYPOD100, and they will give you a nice welcome bonus when you sign up. Again, that's BetOnline.ag. And uh, the promo code is MYPOD100. Uh, Ron and I share something in common. We, we both travel quite a bit, and sleep is really important to us. And there is nothing, in my opinion, that defines a good night's sleep better than a mattress. Uh, my friends at Sleep Envy help customize your mattress by you. You take a one-minute quiz online. It ships in a box, comes right to your door. You get to try it for 100 nights in the comfort of your home. Shipping is always free. If you're not satisfied, they'll pick it up also for free. Use the code PRESSROW at checkout to get this. Are you ready for it? 25% off. 10% of the sale is going to feed the hungry during the coronavirus response fund. Again, that's go to sleepenvy.com and enter the code PRESSROW at checkout for 25%. Last but certainly not least, it is graduation season. It's also Father's Day season. And it's time, if you're looking for a piece of jewelry, my friends at Vanderhout Jewelry, V-A-N-D-E-R-H-O-U-T-J-E-W-E-L-R-Y.com. That's Vanderhout Jewelry. The ability to customize your order, what you're looking for. Customer service team is happy to help you find what the right fit. Um, really cool stuff. If you use the code SPORTS20 for you get 20% off your entire purchase. Again, that's SPORTS20 at Vanderhout Jewelry. Okay back to uh, other things. So, I'm, not, so you, okay. I'm, not checking, I'm not checking my phone, by the way. I'm, I'm checking this book. It's called The Captain Class. Have you heard of it, Sam Walker? I have not. It's, uh, I won't uh, read from it, but uh, Bill Cartwright, the, the basic premise is, you know, why are organizations continually great? And its captains are uh, a huge influence on championships. And it talks about the Bulls in the book. And it says that, you know, the acquisition of Bill Cartwright uh, and making him co-captain was what settled the Bulls after years of flux and several coaches. And they, they give a lot of credit to Ron Harper, too. So your, your panel that you just promoted there. Uh, Bill Cartwright, according to this Sam Walker, was uh, the key that unlocked uh, the six Bulls victory. Did, did you watch the series? Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. Do you know who's the most impressive to me in, of the whole bunch? The coach of the Warriors. He was unbelievable through the whole thing. Steve Kerr. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he, absolutely. He was. And uh, I thought, yeah, it, it was, well, you know, funny when I did the Stanley cup last year, I was back and forth between St. Louis and Boston and I had a chance to watch, uh, you know, it was all American television 24 seven was the NBA, right? They're, they're much more interested in that. And yeah. To see Steve Kerr in his uh, situations last year and then to marry that to the uh, last dance was a phenomenal that and Paxton was also uh you know in a different set the whole I, I really adored of course Phil Jackson and we've probably both read 11 rings and yep. sacred hoops and and just the you know Nick Nurse his you know love of Jackson and the fact he spent three days with him in Montana last summer before they win uh fascinating stuff but Kerr, Kerr's great and and that point you know what I, I often think about Jonah is uh, the way basketball when I was and you're almost able to remember Dr. J but no, I can remember Julius, Dr. 
Okay. Yeah, when, when Julius Irving and uh, Michael Jordan were the deal, it was kind of uh, the game was taken to the basket with a you know hard drive like Kawhi Leonard does. Um, but the but the real excitement of the game now is that three point shot. You know, the Kawhi obviously the winner against the Sixers. The, the ball in the air, the, the suspense that goes into uh, the moment between it leaving the hands and, and going through the net is, is the new magic moment. It isn't Jordan, you know, yep. slam dunk. It isn't Dr. J slam dunk. It isn't Wilt Chamberlain or Kareem at the basket. So it's, it's moved out to the perimeter. And I often wonder in hockey, what will be the transformation, if at all? Will there be something that changes the way the game finds its most exciting moment? That photo of the shot, and you know the photo I'm talking about, where the yes. ball. Yeah. I I got to tell you, like I'm I'm clearly biased, but I, it's one of the best sports photography pieces I've ever seen because it absolutely, I have it as my desktop on my computer on my big screen here. Mm -hmm. It tells so many stories, and there's so many unique things to look at. What was it like? I mean, you're on the road doing the the, the Stanley Cup playoffs. You are a sports fan. Um, did you were you able to enjoy it as a sports fan? I, I did, and, and unfortunately, one of the reasons was Grapes was quite sick with uh, what turned out to be pneumonia. So we normally had our ritual where we would gather in my hotel room and have a couple beers, watch TV, and that would often end up being Fox News. <laughs> Don would always he always would gravitate to certain shows. Well, why does that? Why does that? Yeah, not surprise yeah, me? it doesn't. Shouldn't surprise me. So he loved to watch that because he was always looking for uh, frames of reference in the work he does. So, so that's Judge Judy, right? He, he kind of yeah. saw himself as arbiter sitting, you know, State of the Union, uh, solving the world's problems, you know, great. Uh, but I, I, because Don was kind of banged up, we, I just had the evenings free. We often were in different hotels from the crew. And this is another little idiosyncrasy, but Grapes loves saunas. That was, uh, has always been a crazy, and in the United States, I don't know what it's like in Seattle, but saunas are not prevalent in hotels in the United States for whatever reason. Uh, so we would often break from the crew and stay in a different hotel. So I was kind of in quarantine during the final watching. So was that, hang on, I got to interrupt. I don't like doing this. Was it yeah. your job to find hotels? No, no, no. Uh, that was definitely our uh, travel <laughs> coordinators. And I felt sorry for them many times. You know, we would, uh, we would have to go to great lengths. I remember San Jose being a particular challenge. Uh, there's certain cities, <laughs> the two biggest nightmares of traveling to the U.S. for us where beer in Pennsylvania is sold at beer distributorships. Yep. Uh, it's not available in the grocery store. Right. It's not readily found. So Pittsburgh and Philly are kind of a pain in the butt to go find your beer. And then the uh, sauna issue is kind of been always a, a <laughs> bit of a tough one I don't one think us. very many people ever knew about Hockey Night in Canada, and now they That's do. It. Um, yeah, so, so, so you used to be able to watch the games? Loved it. Uh, and I loved, I've, I've said, you know, the what I really enjoyed was ESPN's morning shows the day after. So that a lot of, you know, Stephen Smith would be on the mm -hmm. game and then he would be on the next morning on one of the two prime morning shows. And that to me was a real uh, strength of ESPN's coverage of the uh, ABC ESPN's coverage of the NBA final down in the States. I, you know, our work's great up here, but I would love to see that uh, at one point for, uh, for Sportsnet, you know, to see those kinds of shows in the morning that uh, rehash with some of the principles involved on the telecast the previous night. So I'm going to go to the conclusion first, which I probably shouldn't do, but whatever. Um, I, for one, will tell you that in my opinion, and I've already told you how valuable that is, Hockey Night in Canada is a dramatically improved product recently post the exit of or the end of Coach's Corner. Uh, I think the I think the I think it's just a better product. I think, uh, in my opinion, that segment had grown predictable and stale. That's just one person's opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think you did a remarkable job the following Saturday with what you did. And because of social media, you were never going to make anybody happy, uh, or everybody happy. Sorry, you made right. lots of people happy. My apologies. Uh, but I think the I think not going to somebody else and actually doing some vignettes and some video segments and some different things has been actually quite brilliant. And I think it's dramatically improved the product. So to the extent that you played a role in that, kudos to you, because I think it's become a lot more watchable. Uh, my dogs are angry because that's the, usually the segment where I used to go walk them. Uh, <laughs> we're, the, the best part about living on the West Coast is you start at 630 
you start early here. So 3.30, you know, it's easy. 3.30, mm -hmm. game's over by 7 o'clock, ready to go out for dinner. The, the night's done. I've already had my hockey fix. Sorry, I don't watch okay. a lot of the, the West Coast games. Um, let's talk a little bit about that night in the aftermath. Um, one question that I've always been curious about, and I always had the same question about um, football. You know, I grew up watching the NFL today on CBS and always wondered how they did their halftime show when there was like 10 different games going on and they did the same halftime show. So how does it, how did it work when you used to do that segment or even, you know, the, the second period segment where you've got multiple games going on at the same time? Is it taped once? Is it repeated? Do you do it multiple times? You can't be in two places at once. I know that. How does that usually work? It's the whichever game the first intermission arrives first, we go. And that could be really problematic because we might have Ottawa playing Carolina, which is not a marquee. Carolina's become quite a team and Ottawa's had some great teams. Uh, but if we have Toronto Maple Leafs and the Vancouver Canucks, our marquee matchup in Canada for population, for ratings, you know, and, and suddenly the Ottawa game's already through the first period and Don and I are doing Coach's Corner and they're still, like I've had Brian Spear, a producer, uh, say in my ear, oh, Ron, Alex Burroughs has just started a row in the Toronto game. So I'm in, I'm on the air live with Don into Ottawa's telecast. And I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, you know, the Toronto Vancouver viewer is going to need to hear this addressed. And then I try to bring it up and Oh man, it was not easy. It was a, it was a, uh, I mean, there, there are ways that you can uh, buffer and go live, but the problem with that is it really condenses uh, the, the amount of times. If, so as an example, if the first period ends in Ottawa and they fill, till the end of the first period in Toronto. I mean, that could be four minutes and then that cuts into the coach's corner. So it was not ideal. Never was ideal. We, we used to, Jonah, we used to do a segment called the hot stove after four. Well, we're going to get there. Don't worry. We're going to get there. That was my so, favorite segment. Yeah. So we had Strachan and uh, Davidson and maybe Jim Houston, whoever we had four of us, we would tape that at three o'clock and then we would tape coach's corner at five o'clock. Back in the day, we actually used to tape the coach's corner because of the trying to put it into three telecasts at six o'clock or seven o'clock Eastern. Uh, and I was always mentally working backwards. I would open the telecast at seven live thinking, Oh my God, at three o'clock, what did I say? At five o'clock, what did I say? You know, it was terrible. It was a, it was a really, uh, it could give somebody anxiety. Yeah, it, it was actually, it probably cured the anxiety. I had enough going on that I didn't have to worry about myself. But it, uh, it you know, that's how we did it. We, we just go first and then they call it time shifting. So the, the coach's corner that ran into the Ottawa Senators broadcast now gets played for the Toronto Vancouver crowd. But with that caveat that we didn't really see the last five, six minutes. As you know, coach's corner was more, a, I call it a state of the union. It was, it was rarely... Until the playoffs, it was rarely game specific. We might have one highlight from the first period of a game, but primarily it was the six or seven days of hot button topics distilled through the lens of, uh, of Dawn. So you, um, typical Saturday night, you're down, you're down. Do you, is, are you guys broadcasting from the ACC or across the street? We're at CBC. Yeah. Okay. So you're at CBC and you throw to the, you throw to the game. What, do, what are you doing while the game's being played? Well, in the days of Don, I would go and sit with him for the first period and uh, watch the game and try to find some clips that I thought were, you know, pertinent. Uh, and and we just kind of go over our final sort of pecking order because we usually had about five to six subjects or topics. Uh, and we would, we, that would change, right? It might, you know, as an example, in the half hour pre-show, we might address, I don't know, for the sake of argument, uh, the Sedins and their power play in Vancouver. And Don's so sick of the subject that what he was going to say about the Canucks is off the table now. Right. So that, that happened a lot, right? So you'd, you'd have to juggle and, and re-line uh, up uh, how you were going to do that segment live, albeit live into just the one month. Yeah. And then, uh, then the second period, I would go upstairs to where David Amber, Brian Burke, Kelly Rudy, uh, could be Kevin Bieksa, where the rest of the crew are sitting and enjoying the games. Because we kind of had separate areas for Don to watch and for them to watch. Because they, they needed to be talking, you know, and they couldn't, that would throw off grapes getting ready for his thing. So it was weird. Uh, and now that's, that's kind of changed. Now I sit with uh, the crew. And I, I always loved the playoffs where I would sit with the crew uh, and watch, you know, God, we eat a lot of junk. But... <laughs> Kelly's, Ke Ke Kelly Rudy's really disciplined. I don't know how he does it, but uh, I think Elliot and I kind of lead the charge on snacks. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed that. And Elliot, you know, got his uh, eyes and ears uh, to the world with social media. He's incredible at uh, monitoring what sort of the pulse is 
and and then I love to just watch. I'm a referee, so I, I'm old school. I still need to just stay dialed into the one game. And uh, yeah, a lot of challenges. And we all come at it different ways, which is beneficial. All right. So you're sitting there, you're watching a game. Something big happens in the game. Somebody scores a big goal. Does anybody cheer? Uh, if it's a great individual effort, you might hear that, what a goal or what a move or, oh my God, I can't believe McDavid just did that. You, you know, you'll feel the appreciation for skill but you won't uh, feel an appreciation for outcome. Is that hard? No, not at all. Uh, you're, you know, Joni, your work. Uh, we, we are so, I am so locked into how do I frame this differently than the time before? Like, you know, when you've worked 34 years on hockey night, you've said tonight's a big game, a lot. Right. And so I'm scrambling for muses, music, film, literature, trying to think of a way to say the same thing for the 1,000th time. That's, that's my whole focus is, uh, and uh, once something like a good example was the night David Ayers uh, came in, you know what I'm talking about. Right? Oh yeah. Hurricanes yeah, yeah. Go with the Zamboni driver. Mm -hmm. So that, that raised a number of uh, journalistic questions, you know, and I might've got lost in the journalism of that, you know, if not the journalism, then the actual sport regulation of that moment and lost the fairy tale of it. You know, I, I might not have conveyed the, the wonder of, uh, Lester Patrick and David Ayers playing goal in the NHL. But that's how I come to it. I, I am a referee. So my first sort of leaning or inkling is, is what is the, what is sort of the ethical, uh, the judicial ramifications of what just happened here tonight? If the Toronto Maple Leafs make the playoffs because David Ayers gave up eight goals or conversely, they right. missed the playoffs, you know, the, on that one really interesting moment in time, that's all I can think about. I'm, I'm very curious about that. And I want to hear, you know, I'm asking Elliot, can you talk to Colin Campbell? And, and we're producers are pulling footage and we're scrambling now in, in that, you know, moment to get to air with a, a fresh angle. And again, there's where Elliot's uh, social media, you know, in the old days without social media, without internet, it's crazy how, how you right. had to have, you your phone calls. Bookshelf is, yeah, <laughs> phone calls and a bookshelf. Now there's, uh, you know, about a hundred people already chiming in with, well, this happened in baseball two weeks ago when such and such, you know, and that really helps you tell the story. So that, as I've often said, and I said in the week after dawn is that, you know, it's no longer a vertical pronouncement from the New York times. Interestingly, they just had an opinion editor step down, uh, because of pressure from within, yep. which was a dynamic story. But anyway, uh, used to be, Peter Mansbridge on the CBC National News or the New York Times, you know, right. would pronounce, and then we would all discuss at the water cooler. Not now. Now it's happening in real time at a at a horizontal level with uh, with the citizenry involved. So I happen to be in Toronto this past winter, and uh, I was at a, an event, and my phone—I could just feel my phone in my breast pocket exploding on a Saturday night. And I uh, could not imagine why I was, I was concerned because I was there with my daughter and she was at a function, a different function for me. And it was one of those moments where social media had exploded because Don had done what Don did. Um, how much of that do you think was a social media? I mean, listen, he said what he said. Um, how different would it have been in a world without social media? Yeah, I think you're right. I think social media played a significant role. I think it, it first of all, uh, galvanizes or mobilizes an army of, uh, of opinion. You know, that's where ethically right now, Jonah, the, the, you know, when you're making those ethical choices, you're usually trying to decide to preserve self-autonomy or the individual's rights. Or you're thinking about respect for human life and the greater or larger good. Uh, and it's really hard to reconcile those two. When you're, when you're trying to preserve Don's rights and citizens rights and uh, you know pressure beyond uh, and it, and and with the uh, advent of social media this goes back to 2004 you know suddenly you have what used to be ethical movements used to be really minority movements and uh, slow moving movements they could grow into great marches and such but they took time not now no. not not with a hashtag uh, so that that probably was a was a huge element in uh, in how things unfolded and it was you know, you've probably heard me speak to it too often. And I, I'm, I'm at this point now where I feel like, okay, do you feel the need to defend yourself? Do you feel the, to explain yourself? Do you need to attack? Do you need to regress or re, um, step back? You know, I, I've, I've always felt a little bit in my head that I'm still not where I need to be in terms of having sorted it, processed it. Um, but I, I will 
for sure agree with you that social media was a factor that night. See, it's funny. Everyone has a different perspective and a different opinion. Mm-hmm. I, I personally didn't think you specifically needed to apologize for anything. I think Don, first of all, Don was a grown up. Don was a big boy. And Don is ultimately responsible for the words that come out of his mouth. And no matter how good you are at your job, you can't stop that, especially if it's live television. So um, how much of, how often did the camera go off and the lights dimmed and you, you thought to yourself, oh man, he's, he's gone too far? Um, I was worried. I, you know, I hadn't really heard it. You know, Grapes is not always uh, linear. Uh, and and it was kind of, you know, he was talking about downtown Toronto and where I live in Mississauga. And, and in my head, I'm thinking, well, is he saying Bay Street or guilty of, you know, corporate Canada's guilty? Yeah. I was trying to figure it out. Plus, not to, here I am defending myself, but I, I just, I had just been in Welland the previous night where a young family had lost their, their boy, a hockey player. Yeah. We did two lovely tributes to two uh, kids who had died. We had the Vimy Ridge video coming up for Remembrance Day. There was so much at play and I, I didn't know for sure. It only took, you know, looking at my phone to kind of realize, oh, this is how this is playing. And did I miss the opportunity? I, I didn't feel like at that time, uh, I didn't feel it was appropriate based on the two young ch- children who died and Vimy to, to get into a, you're a bad guy. This is crazy. Let's have a debate. There was like one second left. Yep. This can't happen right now. Unfortunately, there was never an opportunity to have that debate. And, and I'm not, and I always struggle, Jonah, with, uh, you know, freedom of speech, political correctness, uh, hate speech. Uh, you know, there's a cauldron of uh, things to consider. Uh, and they, there always seems for me to be the catch 22 of what, what is my right uh, to inflict? You know, uh, I, I, I come, I, whether right or wrong, I've always sort of come at it from a position of humility and let them speak for themselves and you be judge for yourself, not me. Yeah. I'm not your proxy. So you're, you're kind of helping me out in that with your opinion, but um, it's, I, I have concluded again, in addition to just persevering, uh, you know, never assume that you will, you will arrive at a right answer. You, you will have, you know, there's sort of two, as I said, there's sort of two ways. The utilitarian approach is uh, okay. You, you allow for this. If, if there's going to be good at the end, the uh, other principled approach is there is no room for anything that's harmful, no matter what, what good was intended, you know, and that would be uh, that. W- those conflicts for me are are really, really uh, important to consider, and really hard. Uh, you know, it's a challenge beyond, and it's certainly a challenge beyond five seconds of live TV. But you not to defend myself. You no, know, no. But in fairness, like you didn't have a teleprompter with a script. No. You had you had you had some some polls that you were kind of sticking around, and some ideas and some topics, but. Mm-hmm. You never knew, I would imagine, where Don was going to go. Not at all. No, you're right. That, that, that's, again, I'm defending myself now. But had I known that, you know, had we sat over coffee before the first period intermission and uh, he said, here's what I'm going to say, well, that would have changed everything. I would have been, well, you can't say it that way or you can't say that or whatever. I, we would have argued back that as we did all the time. But that, that is, I did not catch it. And uh, so I felt bad, you know, for... In my, in my world, it was projecting an attitude and it's wrong. Uh, so I felt bad a little bit if I didn't represent a, a challenge to that, you know, and that I think, I don't know, but maybe that could have saved the situation. Maybe that could have brought clarification and, uh, and a calmness, uh, you know, that obviously didn't exist in the wake of what happened. So, but then at, at the end, you know, um, there was an out. Uh, Don could have fixed it uh, and chose, you know, as he says, he did what he had to do and I certainly did what I felt I had to do and what's wrong with that. So, so the show airs all hell doesn't break loose really officially right away. Like you get through the night. That's right. Does it break loose the next morning? Yes. Yeah. Well, it was, it was probably breaking loose that night uh, a little bit, but for me, uh, my routine is that I leave at 10 o'clock and I go to wherever hometown hockey is taking place. So yeah. in this case, I actually stayed in my home in Oakville because I was going to Welland, Ontario yeah. the next day. But by the time I got in the car at nine in the morning, I was going to Paul Bissonnette's, uh, Bissonnette's home to shoot a feature. What a, what a blur this all was. But uh, that's when I get my first call uh, from Bart Yabsley. And, uh, you know, he, he just uh, 
laid it out that, uh, so now I'm on the phone to Don, I'm on the phone to Bart. I think I might've been on the phone to Jordan that morning. I don't know. Jordan Banks is another one of my superiors. Uh, but then I had to start shooting at 10 o'clock in the, uh, nasty house, you know, so I'm with uh, Cam. Not, not distracted at all. Oh God. And, and they were trying to get me to write a statement. Uh, and I could not freaking concentrate. I was, right. uh, I was so trying to get what I was doing with Tara Sloan. Right. Uh, and then I had, again, here I am, excuses, excuses, excuses. But we had uh, Canada Games had a big unveiling that day that my wife, Carrie, was contributing to on stage. Part of that, part of a, a meet and greet that we do, a corporate get together with the mayor and VIPs and MLAs and such. So it was, you know, Rob Corte, one of my other bosses was there and he saw, you know, that it was just, it was impossible. It was impossible to be uh, a, a great uh, you know, sage you know, sagacity was out the window. I was just trying to survive and get through the show. And it was really, a, it was one of the toughest days. And I was just, I can remember the tightness in myself and just the frustration within myself that there's no way to make this right. You know, so when you, when I, you I spoke to Don, when you spoke to Don, what did you say? I said, we should apologize. And he said, well, you do what you have to do. Really? That black yeah. and white? Immediately? I think so. I think so. Yeah. As I recall, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was, we, we have to, and I think, I think as I recall, Don, again, I am a bit sketchy on the, on the craziness of the day, but I certainly spoke to him in the morning and I spoke to him after I got through the pregame show, as I was going to the Welland arena to do a segment in the second intermission live at the rink, I phoned him again. And now this is after I've done, uh, my version of an apology on behalf of both, uh, Sportsnet and myself, um, and he was good. He wasn't, you know, yelling at me, you know, what a jerk. Um, but I think, you know, I, I often go back and say, if I watched that, you know, I'd be hurt. I, I would, I, I have had, I've been in the position, maybe you have too, but I've been in the position of having to apologize for a colleague on air. And it's always for me, uh, that's a tough one. Uh, that, that is, uh, you know, to, to, to take someone's, uh, apology and make it for them. Uh, it's, I, I don't know if it's dishonorable, but it feels a little bit dishonorable. And, and I, I struggled with that. And I mean, I didn't struggle with what I had to do on behalf of Rogers, Sportsnet, myself, etc. But I, I struggled to say, you know, in no uncertain terms, Don was wrong, which is what I felt, but it hurt me to do it. Right. It, it just like, I guess, I don't know what it would be akin to, but I imagine it's like scolding your child uh, who doesn't understand that the principal is more important than the family at this point. Is that the last time you spoke to him? Uh, in person? No, we spoke again during the week after uh, Don was, I went to his house after uh, the decision was to part ways. I went over with uh, some beer and uh, then I spoke <laughs> to him again on the phone on the Tuesday night. Uh, but then we've kind of just a bit of emails and a handwritten letter and we're good. You know, we, we he and I are good. I, he knows my politics and my ethics and you know, kind of what I have always been trying to do, whether right or wrong. I, I, I sometimes feel, you know, gosh, you can get knocked off your pulpit in a heartbeat with, uh, you know, thinking you're doing the right thing, but actually confusing issues uh, more than you're improving them. Anyway, you, you do your best. And uh, so I think, you know, uh, there may be some hurt at his end. I don't know, but he doesn't, he doesn't express it. He, he's a tough person, as you know. And uh, I think our relationship you know, hinges on the great times and, and not this one incident. So it was widely reported, mostly by me, that uh, it was unlikely that Don was actually going to return this season. Um, you can dispute that, and that's totally fine. That, that's not the debate. Right. Um, if he hadn't returned, and if he had retired um, in a different way, not so publicly and not so uh, controversially. Do you think the segment would have continued with somebody else? Um, that's a good question. You know, uh, I'll, I'll frame it this way. Um, you know what an anchor monster is? Have you read books about anchor monsters? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But my audience may not have. Okay, so an anchor monster is somebody who becomes so powerful as either the host of a national network newscast or a national network sports broadcast that they're well remunerated, that they're well uh, respected, and that they kind of hold power over producers, over staff. Uh, and that becomes an issue that's very hard for uh, corporate uh, entities to reconcile. 
Yep. So what I think you're going to see, Jonah, increasingly is a, a, a movement away from singular hosts who begin to assemble uh, that fiefdom. That's what I think. I think they, they you know, they, the, and, and I am not Jordan Banks or Rob Corte or Bart Yabsley, so I, I, I would be a question for them. But I would think the days of Dave Hodge and Ward Cornell and uh, Ron and I are, or David and I are different. David Amber and I sort of split the duties on, and then Tara Sloan and I split the duties. So I think we've already moved a little in that direction with those two properties. But I think that's, that's a consideration for someone uh, to avoid a scenario where someone becomes so powerful that it's hard to, uh, you know, keep them uh, on your, it's, it, this is a deep question because it also involves the difference between public broadcasting and private broadcasting. Uh, whose principles are at play here? You know, uh, the principles, the difference between rules and values, values like honesty and uh, generosity versus principles. A principle would be uh, honor your neighbor like yourself. Uh, mm -hmm. And a company will have its set of principles. And that will be a far different thing than maybe the CBC or a public broadcaster's version of right to speak. Uh, one has a different, you know, agenda, responsibility, board. Uh, these are all fascinating, fascinating questions that uh, <laughs> I think about. And, uh, and I wonder again, you know, with, with Don having become what Don became and you see what was like to try and yeah. navigate that, I think that, you know, you know, your panel will be safer in the long run. That's a guess. That's just a guess on my part. I grew up on one of the intermissions and I, I'll admit, I don't remember which one. It was the greatest thing ever with those. It looked like it was shot at the, the Forest Hill Hockey Arena, you know, those, those hockey showdowns. Great. Have you guys ever thought about bringing that notion back? Oh, I, I think we have. Yes. It's funny. We were in Fredericton, the late Danny Grant, uh, who beat Daryl Sittler. Uh, so he's from Fredericton, New Brunswick, and it was an unlikely triumph. Uh, you know, because as I said to you earlier, even as a, as a presenter who is supposed to be non-biased, which is foolish, you know, please know there's bias coming out of me at every turn. <laughs> uh, but uh, when I see McDavid do his thing or Sidney Crosby do his thing or Austin Matthews or Mitch Marner, et cetera, uh, yeah, that I think, you know, you can go on uh, YouTube right now and check, you know, a poignant interviews response, and then you can go on and see a, a great move by a hockey player or an athlete. Uh, and that's what for sure kids enjoy, uh, you know, people appreciate. I, I, I really think there's a, a need for us to, to showcase those skills and that's a perfect way to do it. It's a, it's a fantastic uh, concept. I was talking to a friend yesterday who said he spent the weekend with lousy weather watching the 72 series. And he was telling me how great it was, but he was struck by how hockey today is more akin to the Russian style then, mm -hmm. Soviet style then. And the Canadians were kind of the thugs that, that we were. Um, from my perspective, the game has, much or never, the game right now is at a point where skill is carrying the day. And it just seems like you have the personalities and the skill set to return to that kind of showcase, like to show two or three guys going at it on the ice doing, yeah. you know, the drills that they do for the all-star game challenge. But to see that at a, at a smaller rank too, I think that's, that's important for some stupid reason. Uh, I would love to see that come back. Well, you know, I go back to the last two Olympics and even three include Vancouver, but the women's gold medal finals were, uh, probably the greatest moments of those games. I think Sidney Crosby's golden goal uh, would challenge the women's final in Vancouver, but for sure for me in Sochi and for uh, Pyeongchang, the shootout, uh, you know, one of the Lamarou sisters made a move to win it for Team USA that um, it's worth the price of admission. It, it is just, it is just, you know, I always felt like the uh, home run hitting contest and the slam dunk contest those were great uh, for the All-Star. Ours, we at least have shootouts. So we get to see some of the moves made during the course of the season. But I love it. I, I just think that, as you said, I mean, I don't want to... Paul Henderson in 72 was every bit as uh, impressive as some of the great players in our game right now. Uh, and certainly we've had a you know, litany of superstars who were yeah, of just as talented as McDavid and, yep. and or Crosby. But the game lends itself now because it's, uh, you know, it's not, it's not as violent i mean the, the speed has made it a bit of a dangerous uh, animal but yeah i think you're right that we are we are allowing a, a child especially through the ages of uh, 12 to 16 to maintain their skill commitment not scared that they're going to be run out of the rink that was i think what hurt a lot of players i think paul henderson today 
would have been an even greater star than he was in 72. So we're sitting here on June the 9th, inching towards play coming back. What do you think it's going to be like for these guys and the viewer to watch empty arenas with the best of the best playing? Well, I think what you just said about the shootout and the showdown applies. I think that the skill always wins the day. You know, the, the absolute excellence on ice will offset the missing crowd. Uh, it's nice to have the energy of the crowd, though. The Kawhi Leonard shot, let's face it, that, that, that is in part made by the emotion around it. Same with the golden goal for Crosby in Vancouver. Uh, we'll miss that. Apparently, there's apps and such that you can create uh, viewer integration. Uh, they can actually cheer with an app and uh, help help the sound of the show. Uh, we'll see how that all goes. But yeah, I think it'll be just. Uh, I, I've always enjoyed best on best. Whenever we've done World Cups or, uh, and and what you're getting here for the first time is completely well. Knock on wood. Guys will probably pull groins and such, but you will have primarily healthy rosters going into a, a crapshoot. Uh, and it's you know I think the energy around it the can imagine like I would equate it with the women's elite three on three at the all-star in St. Louis. I know how those women felt they were playing on behalf of their sport and you could just feel the venom in their veins for the first minute or two of, you know, what this was, the, the pressure they were under. And then they were just magic, you know, uh, just like Sco uh, Kendall coined Schofield the year before in that fastest skater competition. That's what it'll have for me. It'll have that feeling of, wow, this is an uplifting uh, moment for, for everyone. And you, Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews, you get to be the one providing it. So they should come like a shot out of a cannon. Well, it's certainly going to be interesting. And uh, I really appreciate you taking some time to spend with us. Your, your own podcasts or Zoom casts have been outstanding to watch. Uh, you're a great storyteller. We had Tara on, I think, last week. And, and, and the, the work that you guys do on hometown hockey is as a Canadian, getting to you're my travel, you're my I would say my travel agent, but you you provide a lens into places. So I, I, I'm going to end with a question on travel. Um, we're planning on driving actually from Seattle to Toronto to spend part of the summer there. When we so we're going to drive there through the U.S. and back through Canada. So when we drive from Ontario back to BC, give me two or three spots that maybe aren't going to be in the TripAdvisor. You say. In these cities, these are the places you got to hit. Are you going across the top of Lake Superior when you yeah. come through? Yeah, yeah back yeah. Uh, on the Canadian side. Well, one yeah. book you should read is Zen and the Artist Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Piercing, which is about two guys on motorcycles going across the Great Plains of America. And uh, one's a classicist. Uh, he can fix his bike. He can do anything. The other's a romantic. If his bike breaks down, he makes a phone call, gets someone to fix it. And they debate which is the better approach to life. <laughs> and they also conclude that it's better to drive for a long time and hit the Rockies than to fly into Calgary or Denver and be in the Rockies. Uh, so you're going to have that great opportunity. Uh, I just love uh, Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, I would okay. spend some time in, uh, in and around Iron Bridge uh, and Sault Ste. Marie. That, that'll be one stop for you. When you get to uh, Manitoba, you'll probably stop in uh, Brandon. I, I, Moose Jaw is extremely underrated. So if you can do a night in Moose Jaw, they, ha they have a great spa there. They have some great history. Saunas, just out of curiosity. You know. Yes, they have saunas. <laughs> I, I could have got done there, but uh, yeah. So I, I, would, I would put uh, Sault Ste. Marie, uh, Brandon, Moose Jaw, uh, and then you've got to get into, uh, when you get to Alberta, obviously go to uh, Johnson's Canyon, uh, just outside of Banff would be my recommendation there. Awesome. Well, hopefully we'll be seeing, well, one of us will be seeing a lot more of the other in the coming weeks and months. Hopefully things stay relatively quiet. Uh, I would imagine that you're going to be doing things from the CBC headquarters as you always do. That's right. Irrespective of where the hub cities are, I think it'd probably be safer for everyone and easier. Uh, we miss seeing you on the TV. Uh, I like seeing you on the computer, but we miss seeing you on the TV and the stage for sure. And, uh, you know, again, I for one think, You've, you've handled things in a difficult or challenging circumstance coming out of that cold winter night uh, admirably. And I think that, uh, in my opinion, you don't need to do any more apologizing to, to your audience. I think you handled it well and almost of equal importance. I think the product has improved. Uh, I hope to see things like the Showcase Showdown. And I'd love to actually see you go back to something. It's not that I don't like the panel, but I would love to see something more akin every once in a while to the satellite hot stove, bringing in 
talking heads from across North America, not just the usual folk, nothing against them, but it, it was good banter to see some other people who are viewed as insiders as well. Well, Dick Irvin always said the greatest joy he had with Hockey Night in Canada is to see Montreal, Toronto, New York, Los Angeles. You know, that, that theater of the mind, I agree with you. Well, thanks, Jonah. It was, a, it was a treat. So you continue with your successes as well, and I hope to see you on the trail. Well, I can tell you this. For those, the, no, nobody can see this, but Ron has the most unbelievable bookshelf behind him. I can only imagine you've read every one of those books, and that is yeah. uh, equally as impressive. So I've learned something new. Yeah, I, I say they're sports books, so they're a bit okay. akin to coloring books. <laughs> no, no there's, a, there's a lot of ethics books on that shelf. But it, I don't know if it ever helps me, but I, I, it's my, I'll tell you what I'm reading right now. Uh, again, I've read this uh, several times, but that's Margaret Somerville from Montreal McGill, The Ethical Imagination. She also wrote one called The Ethical Canary. So that's, that's our lot in life. Well, Kinda. stay healthy, stay safe. If you're playing golf, keep your head down. And uh, I will ask that you consider coming back when things are back to normal, whatever that means. That's a deal. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.